This is Blaine Kanzati. Welcome to the Idaho Family Report. We have a great show planned today, including an interview with Idaho State Representative Brent Crane from Nampa. He's here to discuss why he's so passionate about pro-life issues. And we also talk about the vaccine mandate that has come from Idaho hospital systems in the last couple months. It's going to be a great show. Thanks for joining us. Again, my name is Blaine Kanzati. I'm the president of Idaho Family Policy Center, which is a nonprofit ministry that advances the lordship of Jesus Christ in the public square. We promote biblically sound public policy. We equip Christians to fulfill the cultural commission, and we train statesmen to advocate for Judeo-Christian values. Uh, as I said earlier, we're going to be joined later in the show by Representative Brent Crane, so hang tight for that. First, though, let's discuss the recent developments out of Texas this month. I remember when my wife and I were pregnant with our first child. We went to the OBGYN, I think it was six, seven, eight weeks in the pregnancy, somewhere in there, and the doctor wheeled out the ultrasound machine, hooked my wife up, and for the first time we heard our baby girl's heartbeat. Ba-bum, ba-bum, ba-bum. It was simultaneously breathtaking. It was amazing. It was really comforting. And the reason why it was so comforting is because I think intuitively we recognize as human beings that where heart is beating, there's life. Now, I am not saying that life begins with a heartbeat. It doesn't. Scripture is clear that life begins at conception. And even before a heart is beating, God is knitting that person together in his or her mom's womb. But there is something about a heartbeat that is a sign of life. As you're probably already aware, the Texas heartbeat law, which had been signed by Governor Greg Abbott several months ago, finally went into effect on September 1st. The Texas law, like other heartbeat bills that have passed in about 15 other states, it bans abortion after a preborn baby's heartbeat can be detected which is usually sometime around six weeks of pregnancy. A baby's heart begins to beat at 18 days of pregnancy, and that heartbeat can be easily and routinely detected. It's worth noting that about 70% of Americans support banning abortion after an ultrasound can detect a preborn child's heartbeat. Most Americans just don't realize that the heart begins to beat so early. And, and yes, no matter what the supporters of abortion say, it is a heartbeat. You have a preborn child with his or her own heart, uh, the chambers of that heart pumping his or her own blood, not the mother's blood, but the baby's blood. If that's not a heartbeat, then I don't know what a heartbeat is. What makes the Texas law so special, though, is that it's the first of its kind to go into effect. All of the heartbeat laws in other states, about 15 laws, like I said, either have been blocked by the courts or they're waiting to go into effect. And that includes the Idaho heartbeat law that was signed by Governor Brad Little earlier this year. Our Idaho heartbeat law will go into effect only when another state's heartbeat law is upheld by either a federal circuit court of appeals or by the U.S. Supreme Court. Why did we do this? Well, by waiting to make our heartbeat law effective until another state's heartbeat law is upheld in the court system, we put our state in a stronger position to defend our law when Planned Parenthood or when the ACLU 
inevitably files a lawsuit to block the law. So let's go back to the recent developments in Texas. When the Supreme Court denied an emergency appeal from those suing to block the Texas heartbeat law and allowed the Texas law to go into effect earlier this month, which effectively prevents almost all abortions in the state, I began to field a lot of questions from the press, from politicians, from concerned citizens, asking whether our Idaho heartbeat law would be going into effect immediately. And and the short answer is no. Why? Well, if you remember, because the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and the U.S. Supreme Court never ruled on the constitutionality of the Texas heartbeat law. They never ruled on the merits of the Texas heartbeat law. They only denied appeal. That let the Texas law go into effect as a result. But because they never ruled on the constitutionality, our Idaho heartbeat law has not yet been triggered into effect. But the Texas victory does show that the heartbeat bill strategy is working. This strategy is a winning strategy. I don't think that the courts would have allowed the Texas law to go into effect if they weren't anticipating that heartbeat laws would ultimately be vindicated in the ongoing court battles. So all of these developments are a really encouraging indication that we are one big, one big step closer to the point when Idaho heartbeat law goes into effect. And I I believe it's going to happen soon. And Idaho Family Policy Center is going to keep fighting until it does. Some more encouraging news. Um, Since Texas abortion clinics are no longer offering abortions after six weeks, and it's estimated that 85% of abortions in Texas are performed after that preborn baby's heartbeat can be detected, this Texas heartbeat law is going to have a huge impact on the abortion rate there. And this also means that there's a flood of women calling and visiting pro-life pregnancy resource centers or PRCs. The New York Times did a big article on this a couple weeks ago, um, which showed that these pregnancy resource centers that offer financial, medical, spiritual, and practical assistance to women facing unplanned and crisis pregnancies, these PRCs have just been swamped. Uh, Women who would have gotten an abortion are now finding alternatives to abortion at their local pregnancy resource center. We have to recognize that when we finally abolish abortion, when we finally get rid of abortion, whether it's in Idaho or Texas, wherever, we have to have PRCs that are ready to help the flood of women that will come in. We prayerfully look forward to the day that all of this happens in Idaho. And until then, keep the faith and remember to thank God for uh, the years of prayers that have been answered in Texas. Stick with us. After the break, we're going to be joined by Representative Brent Crane, a Republican state legislator from Nampa, Idaho. Welcome back. We're with Representative Brent Crane out of Nampa. Uh, Representative, it's great to have you on the show today. Blaine, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, thank you. So, Representative, you grew up in a political family. Do you mind explaining some of your background for those who don't know? No, not at all. Uh, When I was eight years old, my father was appointed to the Idaho House of Representatives. There was a vacancy from a death, and so he was a precinct committeeman in the local Republican Party, and he got appointed to become a state legislator. 
and thoroughly enjoyed that. Served in the Idaho House for 16 years and then decided to run for state treasurer, and he served as the state treasurer for 24 years. So growing up, I grew up around politics. I mean, that's what we talked at the family table. Uh, we went to Lincoln Days. We went to roundups. We went to barbecues, parades, all of that as a child. And by the time I was 12, he was allowing me to start working on running his campaigns for him. And so I, you know, when there were statewide candidates that were running or individuals that I believed in, I also ran their campaigns locally in the, in the county. So I unique in the fact that a lot of my colleagues don't enjoy the campaign side of the, of, you know, the business, so to speak, but I do. Uh, for me, it's like a football game and you, you know, you have a strategy, you implement it and you, you know, take assessments at halftime and make adjustments. So um, my philosophy, though, really was formed around the kitchen table with my dad, my mom, and uh, I've got five siblings as well. So there's a lot of opinions in our family and strong opinions. So, you know, you're able to debate and argue and, and try to prove your point as to why you think you're right. And that's kind of the culture of which I grew up. Very cool. Um, your family's a family of faith. Yes. What does it mean to be a legislator with Christian convictions? How do you, how, how do those two things intersect? It's not every uh, piece of legislation does your faith intersect with. So, for example, on tax policy, a lot of times if you're lowering the tax rate, some people say, well, that's morally wrong that we're paying such high taxes. But from, from my perspective, a lot of the legislation doesn't necessarily fall into that moral category. It's just, is this a policy we want the state to have or is this a policy we don't want the state to have? However, the committee that I've been privileged to serve on for the last 15 years does deal with those moral issues. And that's one of the reasons I chose that committee. My, my father had chaired that committee for a number of years. So I was very familiar with um, the gay rights legislation that comes through there, the abortion legislation that comes through there, those type of issues that a lot of people wrestle with. But for a person of faith, um, they're very easy. They're black and white questions because God words, God's word spells out very clearly where we should be on those type of issues. And so it's your faith that you're able to to utilize in that capacity to make those decisions that you think are uh, on the on the um, behalf of your constituents are in their betterment. And that committee is the State Affairs Committee in the House of Representatives, which you've served on for years, and now you chair. And one of the one of the categories of bills that goes through that committee are the pro life bills, um, which at Idaho Family Policy Center we work closely on. We've worked with you on several of those pro life bills, most recently being the heartbeat bill. Um, which passed the legislature and was signed by Governor Little earlier this year. Um, as a as a Christian legislator, as a state legislator, why are those pro life bills so important to you, and why have you really become a champion for that cause? Like I said, I grew up in a political family, and so we would go to those rallies uh, every year. I can still remember as a ten year old child uh, watching the movie. It was a documentary called The Silent Scream. Um, you don't have those type of influences in your life early on, but what this issue of abortion affects your life in a very profound way. And uh, so for me as a person of faith, doing what I can to help people understand that that is a child, that's not a clump of, of tissue or a clump of cells. Um, for me, it's extremely important to try to enact policy that helps people understand we've got to stop this horrific practice called abortion. And I, I, you know, had the unique opportunity to have Planned Parent in my office on a number of occasions, and I, I do reach out to them and make sure that I develop a relationship with them. And I remember a couple of years ago telling their executive director that you are going to lose this battle, the battle with respect to uh, Roe v. Wade and abortion. And I said, the reason you're going to lose this battle is because of technology. 
you have repeatedly told a lie that you have said this is nothing more than a clump of, of cells or a clump of tissue. Uh, it's not a human being. And now because of technology, we have a window into the womb. Yeah. And we can see that that's not just a clump of cells, that that is an actual human being created in the image of God. And as a result, uh, the policies that we can move forward within the state, and you've had a, a hand in that this last year with the heartbeat legislation, are very important, very near and dear to my heart. Yeah, one of the very cool things that happened during the fight for the heartbeat bill last session was that one of our local crisis pregnancy centers, Stanton Healthcare, brought their mobile clinic to the front of the Idaho State Capitol um, just after one of our hearings on the heartbeat bill. And they performed ultrasounds to show some of the legislators who came out to see um, that these you know, babies are truly human. There is no doubt that there are a clump of cells. And when you see that ultrasound and when you hear that heartbeat, it becomes clear that that baby is a baby that deserves protection. Absolutely. Yep. So what, what are some of the other pro-life bills that you've worked on in the past? Um, one of the bills that I worked on that kind of helped push this forward was a woman's right to view. And I remember wrestling with that particular piece of legislation. What was the best way to convince my colleagues? And I was talking to my wife about it, which uh, she's an individual that I bounce a lot of these type of things off of. And she said, it is all about the woman. And she said, in this process, a lot of times the woman is pushed to the side or the woman is used as a prop for those that are trying to promote choice. And she said, if it truly is about a woman making an informed choice, why would you not give her the ability to view that image. And the, and the simple fact is, is the pro-choice community w does not want to do that because over 75% of the time, if a woman sees that that truly is a baby and it's not just a clump of cells, they will decide to keep that baby. So I, I remember working that issue. Um, and I remember at that time, the legislator that was kind of mentoring me in running these bills said, there's a spiritual component to pro-life legislation. And whenever you're working these bills, uh, they're different than other bills. You will feel oppression. Uh, you will feel that, that there's a spiritual attack. And uh, my church doesn't talk about spiritual warfare. It's just, it's not one uh, subject that I'm very familiar with in my church. But I remember that happening and hearken back to that conversation and what she said. And every pro-life legislation that I have carried or worked on, that has been the case. There is a very strong spiritual component to pro-life legislation. Um, and as a Christian, it's important that we engage in that battle and we do what we can to educate women, to uh, also ensure that we can do everything we can to protect those innocent lives. Yeah, so many women have been taken captive by the lie mm -hmm. that uh, there is no baby inside of them and it's their choice. And one of the things that I've learned um, and I've seen so clearly working with the pregnancy resource centers that we do as we work on these pro-life bills is the regret that so many of these women have um, after after they've taken the life of their own child, and that's that's regret that you know the pregnancy resource centers, churches help them through that healing process, through that process of repentance. But it's uh, it's something that's 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 hard and lifelong. And when the state can pass laws helping women make informed decisions, helping women understand that these babies are babies, and then protecting these babies and, and preventing women from accessing these elective abortions. That's in the best interest of the mother helping Absolutely. to ensure that, that she does not make a decision that she will regret for the rest of her life. But you know, the cool thing, Blaine is as a Christian, we know that God can for forgive 
and he is in the uh, he he not only forgives but he's in the restoration business. And so for any woman out there today that might be listening to this podcast and say, you know what, I, I made a decision that I regret and I have a lot of regret, turn to God. He will not only forgive you, he will redeem you and restore you. And that's the amazing thing about the God that we serve. Absolutely. And our local pregnancy resource centers often offer after abortion care, mm-hmm. uh, counseling, group sessions, um, and other forms of assistance to help women deal with that that regret. And your local church, I'm sure, would, would love to help you with that as well. Um, What's it like being a state legislator? Um, you know, everyone has this idea of state legislators and, you know, they're, they're political animals. Uh, people, I think the average person kind of views even state legislators as being um, unapproachable, maybe. What's it really like being a state legislator? Okay, I'm going to give you the honor, my honest opinion, and I tell this to people uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but it's true. It is junior, junior high on steroids. Uh, my son is in eighth grade. My daughter is in sixth grade. And they come home every night and tell me the drama that's going on in junior high. And it is exactly the same. Uh, it runs on gossip. Uh, it, there is a constant drama that's happening, whether you're in session or out of session, there is always something going on. So that's the humorous side of it. But the, the actual real work is important work, and it's enjoyable work. Um, you'll, you'll, you do, you have, I, I, I just had someone in my office today and I said, there's three types of legislators. You've got your, your show ponies, you've got your workhorses and you've got your grand, uh, chess masters and people kind of fall into one of those three categories when they come into the legislature and it doesn't take too much time to figure out who the show ponies are and who the workhorses are. The grandmaster chess players are the ones that are, that are interesting because they're usually very good at poker and can maintain that poker face, but they're you know, in, able to move things behind the scenes. Um, but it's enjoyable work, it's rewarding work, it's beneficial work, and it's a great way to give back to your state. What would you say to citizens in your district um, about the importance of communicating with their state legislators on issues that matter to them? Um, first of all, please reach out. If you've got an issue, please let us know. Secondly, we won't always agree on what the solution should be. And understand that that a lot of times the information that you're getting through media or social media is not accurate. And we have more information and in that we're trying to make the decision based on the information that we have at that time, the decision that we think is the best information. And third, be patient with us. Uh, we don't have any staff. And I have advocated for years that we should have staff. I was meeting with a, a staffer from an, the state of Pennsylvania, and they were talking to my wife and I this week and, and they're just got a new job at the state representative. And she, she said to, to me, she said, now, how does your staff, you know, how does that work? And I said, we have no staff. And she laughed. She goes, you got to be kidding me. I said, no, we don't have staff. Why do I bring that up to my constituents? Because a lot of times they will email and we don't get back to them. And the reason being is you're, you're overworked in issues. You don't have a time to even check your inbox. So be patient with us. Uh, when that happens, no, we're not trying to blow you off. I'm a businessman, and, and I understand the importance of communication with your constituents or your clients, but it's that's the frustrating side of it is there's not enough time to go around to communicate with your constituents, but I love to hear from them. We had a great town hall meeting uh, three weeks ago, probably had 150 people that turned out. It was excellent, and we're going to try to do more of that so that there can be more citizen engagement. One of the gals in there said, she goes, I haven't been able to get a hold of you we have met twice uh, since then, been mm. able to set up meetings and go through issues, and it's been fantastic. Very cool. 
what do you say to the person who says, oh, there's no use in contacting your state legislators. It's not going to make any impact, right? I, I know a lot of um, the, the people that we deal with at Idaho Family Policy Center are frustrated with the U.S. Congress and they're used to, you know, congressmen kind of blowing them off, um, not really having the time to take their concerns into consideration. Is that the same thing at the state level or do you, are you guys more responsive, do you think, to the, to the, to the needs and the requests of the constituents? I think we are more responsive. I will tell you, the longer that you're there, the more issues you get drug into and the less time you have for, for uh, constituent engagement, and that's tough. Um, but it is extremely important to engage. And I'll give you a story. Um, we had one time a bill, a guy from Twin Falls, wanted to be able to have uh, those little wiener dogs. Uh, they do a race, apparently, with these wiener dogs at the county fair, and it's illegal in the state of Idaho. And so he drafted a bill that said we could have these wiener dog races at the county fair. Well, the guy that worked on outlawing dog racing in the state of Idaho lives in my district, and he contacts me, and he says, hey, would you please vote against this bill? This is the first step in them trying to legalize uh, dog racing again. And I'm like, well, yeah, I don't have a dog in the race. This guy's from my district. So I went to the legislator, and I said, look, this is the concern. He's like, oh, no, 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 this is just for, you know, for county fairs. I said, well, I'll just let you know I'm voting no. My constituent has asked me to vote no. Here's his, his reasonings why. And I did, and I was the only person that voted no. But, it, but to think that, hey, that doesn't make any sense to contact them. They don't listen. No, we do listen. Absolutely. My experience has always been with the state legislators. They're very responsive to the concerns of their constituents and far more approachable than people would uh, assume, I guess, on first first glance. Very approachable. And, and I would invite you to ask your legislator coffee. Say, hey, could we go grab a cup of coffee? Respect their time. Always set a time limit to it, 15, 20, 30 minutes. Um, because they are busy people. They have lives outside the legislature. But like I referenced earlier, that lady, we have met twice for coffee each time. Uh, we've set a time limit. Here it is. And then she's able to ask any questions that she wants to. It's been very productive for her as a citizen trying to get engaged in politics locally. So, yeah, reach out and set up an appointment with her. That's great. One of the issues that has blown up over the last several months is the issue of vaccine mandates. Um, out here in Idaho, we've had several of the uh, hospital chains and um, you know medical chains issue vaccine mandates for their employees. Uh, this is an issue you're passionate about, and um, I think we're starting to see some of the repercussions of these mandates. Do you want to go into that? Sure. Uh, what's frustrating to me is the hospitals here, respectfully, in the Treasure Valley have a, a monopoly. And you had St. Al, St. Luke's, and Primary Health all announce on the same day that if our workers don't get take the vaccine, then they're going to be out of a job. Um, to me, as a business owner, that is not how you handle your employees at all. Uh, the, your employees are your most valuable asset in a, in a business, and you need to treat them that way. And they were not being treated that way. Secondly, if those nurses uh, work to no longer be employed, you're going to have a nursing shortage. We already have a nursing shortage with them employed. So why in the world would you kick them out and, and reduce your, your force by 20%? Third, uh, the, the difference between a hospital and a regular business, and this is where people say, I don't want government involved in business. Government is actively involved in hospitals. These guys receive billions of dollars in tax breaks here in the Treasure Valley billions. And so my business isn't subsidized by the government. I'm not getting huge tax breaks for providing security and fire services here, but they are. And the intent behind those tax breaks was that they could provide charity care. That's the total intent behind that. Um, but if you're going to ask the citizens of the state of Idaho to shell out their hard-earned tax dollars to prop up your hospital, then the last thing that you should be doing is kicking those workers out. 
one thing that the media has been reporting on extensively over the last several weeks, especially with the surge and the Delta variant in the Treasure Valley, is uh, the issue of the staffing shortages. And uh, I know several of the local newspapers have done stories on primary health, um, St. Luke's all having staffing shortages. And it's your understanding that in large part, these staffing shortages are not necessarily fueled by um, nurses quitting because they're worn out from caring for COVID patients, which is the, the spin that the media is giving it, but instead that nurses and doctors and other medical professionals are quitting because they don't want to comply with these vaccine mandates. Is that true? It's true, and it's it's interesting. I uh, have a sister that's a nurse. I have a cousin that's a nurse, a couple of cousins, a, you know, a family that's extensively involved in healthcare. And they have told me that even the nurses that have taken the vaccine have said, what is happening to you guys is wrong. And we are going to stand with you because we may be okay taking this vaccine, but we might not another vaccine that comes down the pipe. What if they're using uh, aborted fetal tissue in in another vaccine that's coming down the pipe? You okay with that as a Christian? No, but you're being forced to do that. Uh, It's a very, very slippery slope that you either do this or I'm going to fire you. You're going to put this into your body. There has to be some body autonomy. And when talking to these nurses, uh, they said, hey, look, staffing already because of the growth in the Treasure Valley, there is a shortage of nurses. But the reason you're going to have a healthcare crisis is because we, there's, there's about 20% of us that aren't going to take that vaccine and they are going to let us go. The governor responded this week with, well, I'm going to activate the National Guard and I'm going to have them go into the hospital and try to help. That's not what the National Guard was designed to do. And if I were governor, what I would have done um, last year with respect to COVID is I'd have taken the Idaho Center out here in the Treasure Valley. I would have turned it into a triage hospital for COVID patients. I would have let the military run that triage hospital, kept our nurses and doctors working in their hospitals. All the COVID patients go out there to the Idaho Center and get treated because they're not going to reinfect each other. They'd have all the ventilators right there. They could take care of those specific cases and let your hospital workers continue to do the great work that they do. Still let elective surgeries go on and and normal care. But you are going to see a disruption in care. There is no doubt about it, and that's a concern. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Representative Brent Crane. And we're so grateful for your stand for life in the legislature and your stand for liberty. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back. You know, at the end of every Idaho Family Report, we do a devotion. And the topic today is legislating morality. The text is Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 25, which says, this is Jesus speaking. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise, and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on the bedrock. You can't legislate morality. I've, I've heard it a thousand times, especially with my line of work. The implication from those who say you can't legislate morality is that morality and legislation don't mix. But consider the laws that were enacted by the founding generation of Americans, those who helped frame our country. They didn't think that morality and especially biblical morality, was off limits. They never thought that. Take, for example, the laws passed by the Connecticut legislature within just the first couple years after the War for Independence. Um, Among other things, the laws passed by the Connecticut legislature included laws prohibiting adultery, 
drunkenness, fornication, and gambling, all on biblical grounds for biblical reasons. The Connecticut legislature instructed town leaders to supply Bibles, catechisms, and other religious books to needy families. They expected families who adopted a Native American child to educate him or her and quote, the principles of the Christian religion. They also passed laws that punished Sabbath-breaking, fortune-telling, and swearing. Laws that openly reflected Christian morality were ubiquitous, not just in Connecticut, but in every state in the nation. Even the famous Thomas Jefferson drafted several Virginia statutes that explicitly legislated biblical morality. This included laws that provided for punishing disturbers of religious worship and Sabbath breakers, and annulling marriages prohibited by Levitical law. Those were the titles of the laws passed by or written by Thomas Jefferson. All of this must come as a shock to those secular humanists who like to appeal to Jefferson and other founders in their attempt to defend their misguided vision of a strict separation of church and state. Should we legislate morality? Most certainly. All laws reflect one system of morality or another, right? Murder, theft, arson, fraud, assault, rape, kidnapping, slavery, prostitution, perjury. They're all illegal because we all agree these behaviors are immoral. These behaviors can't be tolerated in any society that seeks to promote the common good and human flourishing. Can you imagine somebody arguing that government should not criminalize murder or kidnapping because that's legislating morality, that's absurd. All law has moral concern. And given that, the question is not whether morality should be legislated. The question is which morality will be legislated. And it's our responsibility as Christians to advance the cultural commission by seeking to implement biblical principles in law, in public policy, and in society. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, we long for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We desire for our laws to reflect your justice, for your morality to be codified in our laws. Please guide our state legislators as they write laws that point people back to your good design. And please help us better understand what role we play in creating a society built upon your principles. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you'll consider financially supporting Idaho Family Policy Center as we work to promote biblically sound public policy. You can learn more and you can give online at idahofamily.org, idahofamily.org. Until next time, let's keep working to rebuild our culture and let's keep fighting the good fight to protect our God-given rights. Don't ever forget the biblical promise of Galatians 6-9. In due season, we shall reap a harvest if we do not give up. Take care and God bless.